Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan and here he is, the man himself, Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And this is The Sound of Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. Grab yourself a 30-day free trial on The Athletic so you're all set for when the football returns. And along with everything Phil's written about, you get these podcasts ad-free, plus every piece of football content The Athletic has to offer. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We have a date finally, Phil, which is good news. June the 20th for when the EFL will be returning. First thing I want to address, though, if we could, just so we're absolutely clear on this, because I've been struggling. I don't know whether it's through a lack of attention or what, but the EFL's messaging they're messaging a lot. We're hearing a lot from them about return dates and meetings. And I've kind of started zoning out. Now, I guess it's my job to know this, but I find it difficult to follow some of this. So can you clear up the exact position we're in now with the EFL in lay terms? There are a lot of strands to this and communication has been a bit of an issue uh, over the past week. You'll have seen the criticism from QPR um, of the, the June 20th start date and quite a few other clubs, um, including Gary Monk at Sheffield Wednesday, um, have, have also said that they were surprised to be hit with the June 20th date at, at nine o'clock on Sunday evening and, and that they were only given half an hour's warning that it was coming. And, and there are some clubs that feel that that doesn't give them sufficient time to build up the players' fitness and, and stamina as they would like. I think... Realistically, though, if, if you look at the, the time frame that's left and the fact that Rick Parry wants the, the EFL season to finish on July the 31st, that seems to be a, a clear and cut deadline in, in his head. I think they have to start on June the 20th. I think anything later than that leaves insufficient time to play nine regular fixtures um, for every club, plus two two-legged semi-finals and, and the playoff final on or around July the 30th. I think from June the 20th, you just about have enough time to do that. But, but one more delay... And we've been saying this for a while now, one more delay to this, and it does feel as if the whole thing is done. They, they, they don't have any more wriggle room. And I don't think June the 20th was a surprise in the sense that it hadn't been discussed. It seemed to me that, if anything, it, it was the communication and the way it was handled over the weekend that was the biggest frustration. The fact that it was a half hour warning um, to clubs that this was coming and, and you know, arriving so late on, on Sunday evening, it, it did seem to upset a few people and, and QPR in particular. The other thing that's going on at the moment is that next week we're expecting a vote on the framework, uh, the introduction of a framework to allow for points per game um, conclusions if seasons have to be curtailed. And again, this has caused confusion because I think some people are assuming or are reading into this that the leagues are going to vote there and then on whether to curtail or whether to, to go ahead. That's likely to happen in the case of League Two because they've already decided in the main that, that they want to finish now and, and they don't want to play on. But in the case of League One and, and definitely the Championship, this is purely to create a rule that doesn't exist at the moment. Um, as it stands, the EFL doesn't have any mechanism to end the season and to, to implement a points-per-game solution to decide the table. It'll get the support it needs. I'm, I'm certain of that. And clubs are, are due to vote next week. They've had a few days to um, voice their opinions on it and, and to give any suggestions. But there won't, unless something changes drastically over the next few days, the next week or so, there, there won't be an immediate vote on the championship because the championship are back to training. Most, if not all, of the clubs have applied for to resume contact training um, and have been given permission from the EFL to do that, Leeds United included. Uh, and as far as they're concerned, they're, they're aiming now for full training sessions for friendlies if they want to play friendlies and for the games to start on, on June the 20th. So it is all quite convoluted and it is all a little confusing and there is an element of a life of Brian about it where you seem to be having meetings about meetings about meetings. But this is essentially what's going on in the background and it's not helped by the fact that it, it is fragmented. You've got different priorities 
opportunities in the championship to what you've got in League Two. You've got a division in League One that is yet to really decide what it's going to do, but I think at this rate is definitely going to be forced into to early curtailment. Um, but as, as far as Leeds are concerned and, and the championship as a whole, we are very much aiming for the weekend of June the 20th. So this meeting next week, just to clarify, double check, so we're all clear, this is when they will set to they're set to codify it into the rules of the AFL that points per game is a mechanism they can use to end the seasons and then it will go ahead unless the leagues vote otherwise. Yes. I mean, for example, it's similar to the Spygate ruling that was brought in at the AGM last summer, which imposed restrictions on when teams could um, be at or around an opposition club's training ground after after everything that went on with Marcelo Bielsa. It requires a vote to, to create a rule like that, because as you'll remember in that instance, Leeds were punished under a, a good faith regulation because there wasn't actually anything specific in the rules that covered um, what Bielsa was doing with uh, with his interns and, and with his, his scouting team. And, and likewise, nobody at the EFL has preempted this situation, uh, this scenario where you're almost complete with the season. You're literally nine games or so away from the end of it, but you don't have any way of finishing it through a mechanism that allows you to enforce promotion um, or to, to enforce relegation. So that's what this will do. That will make sure that, that there is the scope to do that if this divisions decide to do so. Um, but when you think about it, it would be ludicrous for championship clubs to have gone back to training with the the, the kind of heavy cost of, of testing, the difficulty, the logistical difficulty of testing, and then the, uh, stepping it up with the process of returning to contact training. It would make no sense to have done that if next week there was the potential for a vote which um, decided that the season would be curtailed here and now. I mean, it's something we did cover off last week in terms of the, the clubs objecting to, to the restart. And again, we covered it off in our podcast earlier on this week, uh, so we probably don't need to spend too long on it, but I do get the sense that there's a little bit of, it's almost intellectual dishonesty about the clubs turning around and saying that they're shocked that this this 20th of June date has been, been dropped on them, even if it was short notice. As you say, the timetable has been laid out for ages. July the 31st was the immovable object that we had to deal with, wasn't it? I think so. And as it is, you, you'll have to play once every three or four days anyway. And I don't think there's anybody in the championship who would support the idea of breaking that down to playing every two days or you know a maximum of every three days in between that you'll have seen in Germany that there's been a definite increase in injuries and, and in particular soft tissue injuries which would you know the medical analysis of that would suggest that that is a byproduct of the fact that the players have had so long away from the game and the, the bodies are not quite as used to the intensity of it as they would have been two months ago when when the season was in full flight and you know, I go back to the original point, which is that would the season have been able to finish had it started on June the 27th? If it is not back to June the 27th, are there physically enough weeks and enough days to fit in the number of games that, that need to be played? 108 in total, plus um, your you playoff matches as well. I don't think there is. And, and I don't, in, in all the the, um, the discussions or the comments that QPR made, they, they didn't seem to be suggesting an alternative that was particularly credible. And I know Gary Monk has, has said, today in, in a, a media briefing that he thinks it, it should be June the 27th. But my gut feeling is that that doesn't leave enough time um, and it doesn't leave enough scope to conclude before July the 31st. And unless July the 31st is actually flexible, unless Rick Parry is willing to, and the AFL are willing to bend on that, um, I think they're going to have to go with June the 20th or they're going to have to face facts and, and accept that the season probably can't be finished. I think I'm coming round to the idea that I might be a secret Barnsley fan. The more I hear from them compared to everybody else, the more I'm willing on Alex Mowat, MC Freestyle and the crew at Oakwell to, to have a good finish because they've come out and said that Barnsley are ready to play whenever the league is ready to restart and that they're tired 
said their co-chairman, Paul Conway, of clubs crying about not having enough players or players out of contract. If clubs would focus on abiding by EFL rules, running a sustainable business with more of a commitment to youth, they should have adequate cover for their squad. And he he makes a good point about some of the things I was hearing from the complaints from other clubs. One is, one is that teams might be able to field effectively two sides over the next games. They can play one eleven one week and one the next because they've got so much squad depth and the other teams in the division can't do that. It's like, well, that's not something that's just happened in June of 2020. It was like that at the start of the season. It's been like that in the championship for years, unless you want to start the, the competition over again with new rules about squad spending and salary caps and ensuring that the league table at the end of the season isn't always just a reflection of the wage bill of each club at the start of it, then it's always going, going to be like that. And when you've got Mark Warburton wittering about and Gary Monk as well, that these are elite athletes and they need to be prepared like racehorses for the, the, the end of the season, I suppose, okay, they are athletes. I suppose you have to answer yourself whether 13th in Division 2 is the elites or not, but... Barnsley's attitude of essentially we're ready and we'll meet your lads in a field at three o'clock on Saturday if you want to play a game of football is so much in back in the spirit of what football should be about and what's necessary to get through the next two months of rushing through the to the end of the season that um yeah it's it's leads to stay to go up and Barnsley to stay up is my uh, is my wish for the end of it and if they could bring back the kit with the stars on it that they used to have in the late 80s I would like that even more part of Gary Monk's complaints as well seem to be that the Premier League have had longer to prepare than the championship but if you're just talking about making a competition fair he's not being asked to play against Premier League teams so I, I felt like that point was pretty much moot in that if in in that case there is a, an underlying factor with Barnsley as well, which is that they are one of the clubs who are very unhappy about the fact that the, the disciplinary cases against um, Sheffield Wednesday and Derby, for example, which obviously don't relate to, to coronavirus at all, have not been dealt with. And, and if they were dealt with and if they did go against those clubs, they could result in, in major points deductions, which would, um, again, affect the, the championship table um, severely and, and would, would change the the way in which it looks in the, amongst the bottom three. There, there is definite frustration that, that that doesn't seem to have happened quickly enough and, and that it, it appears that there'll be no resolution on those unless something happens very quickly now before the season ends. So, you know, there, there is to a degree an ulterior motive for what Barnsley are saying. I think they, in terms of the, the argument about the level playing field, they feel that that is something which is not levelling it and, and is making it uneven, the fact that these cases are, are still outstanding. But uh, I, it still seems to me that, that most clubs in the Championship want to play and want to, to get on with it. I think there was, you know, fairly widespread frustration with the way it was handled over the weekend and, and the timing of that announcement on Sunday. But I'm certainly not sensing... Uh, a, a huge sway from we want to play to we don't want to play. I just think, as as has been the case from the start of this, you've got gripes, you've got individual concerns, you've got um, you've got self interest, which is always going to going to play a part, and and that's probably going to be the case if this season is able to finish and we do get to forty six games. That is probably going to be the case right up until the last kick of the ball. Never mind all those crybabies, Phil, because things are looking all right at Leeds. The players are in fine shape. They are. They've, they've come back in, in very good shape by all accounts. And somebody was telling me that the, the running stats have been excellent, up with, if, if not better, than um, the stats they had pre-lockdown for the, the running sessions that Bielsa makes them go on. In terms of COVID, as of Saturday in the third round of tests, club aren't commenting on, on where they're at with them, but our understanding is that they were clear. Um, as of that point, we've got another... 
batch of, of results due to come shortly. Um, so we'll, we'll see how how that rolls out. And and I think having seen, you know, the, the number of cases jumped to 10 um, at eight clubs over the weekend, which is still a, a, a very small fraction, a tiny percentage of the, the thousand or so tests that are being done. But having seen it spread to, to eight clubs um, on Saturday, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that, that nobody is immune and Leeds are vulnerable like, like everybody else. And it's probably going to be a challenge for any club to get through this period of build-up without posting a, a single positive test. Um, but I got myself down to Ellen Road as well on Monday. I, I just wanted to get back in the ground to, to to have a feel for it and, and to see what was going on to which the answer was not an awful lot because obviously it's gated and locked and, and everything else but the pitch looks fantastic I mean the, the ground staff have been on top of that right the way through the shutdown and and normally the, the pitch would get cut to bits at this time you know it's coming off the back of winter when damage is usually done to it um, because of the poor weather and um, and at this stage it's, it's trying its best to recover as, as the games are ticking over but it, it looks as good as new at the moment and it is as Bielsa likes it. It's short, it's fast, um, it'll be perfect for them, I think, when, when they get back. So in a lot of respects, they're nicely placed. They're nicely placed in terms of fitness and, and preparation. As I say, the you know, the, the battle against the, the virus itself is constant and it's just, you know, endless testing at the moment and, and that wait to see who picks it up, who doesn't, which clubs are able to stay um, virus-free. But they seem to be very happy with where they are. And I think crucially as well, no complaints at all from Leeds about the June 20 um, start date. I think they're happy with that. And I think, again, they feel that the, the sooner the better could be could be the case for them because of the way they've looked after the players in lockdown. What did it feel like standing back in Ellen Road then after all this time? It was strange and, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. It's not that I've never been in the stadium when it's empty, but I think what I was trying to get a feel for was what it's going to be like when Bielsa and the players get back out into that. And that is the environment they have. There's a big difference between walking out into Ellen Road when it's quiet and knowing that in an hour, hour and a half's time it's going to be full and it's going to be frenetic. I think it, it is very, very different when you think that for a first team game, I mean, I have watched reserve team games, I've watched youth games down there when there, there have been literally a handful of people watching and, you know, it, it does make the matches feel like a, a training game. I've never seen, I'll never have been to anything like it, I don't think, with a competitive championship game in front of you and, and one at such a crucial stage of the season. And I do think it's going to be a challenge for everybody to, to lock into that and, and to to make it work for them, to, to thrive in a stadium that feels like it should have people in it. You know, it, it does feel like the noise is kind of bouncing off the walls. You, you notice when you get in there that at its peak, the atmosphere in Ellen Road is so noisy that it, it can make your eyes shake. But when it's when you're in there and there's nobody there, you can hear bird song from the, the top of the west stand and you can hear crows from the other end of the ground and and it is very very strange and I know that Liverpool trained at, at Anfield um, earlier this week I'll be interested to see whether Bielsa tries to get Leeds down to Ellen Road at some stage to to get a you know get some sense of what it's going to be like having to win games with absolutely nothing going on round about you it, it is definitely going to take the players out of their comfort zone and I think a lot of them will find it very strange Moscow and Michael how do you boys think it's going to affect the players do you think we'll benefit from it my instinct is that we're going to do well from this but that's completely misplaced optimism probably on my part a rare bit of optimism it just feels like we've had a a chance to recharge knowing the way we've started under Bielsa before this is almost like the start of a new season and having taken out a crowd it just feels like we've taken out another variable albeit one we'd like to be involved in so I, I'm generally speaking fairly positive about it and all the signs are that you know we were already the fittest team in the league and we're probably even fitter now than we were before I don't think it's going to be especially helpful to play in a, an empty stadium but I think the way that Leeds have handled everything from the beginning of the coronavirus situation has been so good that it gives the players 
some extra confidence going into the the rest of the season that they they sort of have a a mark of quality to copy. I was reading Gary Monk's comments about the the announcement of the June twentieth restart day earlier earlier today, and obviously we know at Leeds what he's like, but we've kind of forgotten just what a a word salad the guy comes out with. There's a there's a bit. I mean, there's tons of it apart from anything else. And then towards the end, it just gets onto the question of whether they're going to play any friendlies. And the answer is so convoluted and it just goes on about all the different things. And it all revolves around this whinge that the June 20th date was a, was announced on Sunday. And you think if you were a, a player coming to the end of that and you say, oh God, we've got to go into work and that guy's got to be there tomorrow droning on us. Leeds, I've heard nothing from any of the players apart from they had that, the one, they had one sort of motivational video message from Marcelo Bielsa that I think was telling them to um, appreciate what the NHS are doing for the the country at large. And this eagerness to get back to to work and and work with one of the best coaches in the world who also has the advantage of, I wonder whether his summer tournament experience, being at World Cups, being at Olympics, where the atmospheres are are different, you don't have a a home crowd and you have a, a closed environment at a training camp and it is summer sport which we're again we're not used to in this country all those little things that that add up that are that are very quietly in Leeds United's favour and haven't been splashed across talk sport sky sports and every other media channel at the the excruciating length of a of a Gary Monk or a um a Karen Brady or a Mark Warburton I would like to hear from Bielsa though it uh, is not his priority at all to be speaking to us but I would be very interested to know how he sees this how he sees what's going on under his nose so you know at Thorpe Arch what, what his players are doing and, and the condition they're in and, and how he thinks the, the shutdown is going to affect him but also his feeling about what's being said elsewhere the criticism from Warburton does he does he agree with it does he understand it does he does he disagree with it and does he think um, they're, they're making excuses it, it would be nice to, to know what's what's in his head but it's been a good two three months now since we've we've heard from him and, and actually I mean he kept himself at arm's length last week as the players were coming in for the first group sessions he wasn't in their faces he wasn't all over them he, he was keeping his distance because I think again they're just going to try and build this up and, and taper it in a way which means that when they're, when they're ready to go they're ready to go and, and he'll be right back in the mix I get the feeling Bielsa would defend the concerns of other people while also privately thinking he takes complete personal responsibility for Leeds United. Yeah, I think so. And in the same way that he'll always say, um, this is the way I play, other other managers play differently, neither of us are correct and neither of us are are wrong. But ultimately, if you backed him into the corner and and pushed him to give you an answer, um, his way is the right way. That's that's how he feels. And I think, I mean, he was desperate to get back in on May the 16th, which was the, the, the initial date that the EFL had set for um, the resumption of training. And obviously they had to push it back by seven days. But I mean, he, he was all systems go for, for that point. And, and I'll ima- I imagine it would have been difficult for him in the days that followed, feeling like he should have been back at the training ground with, with some of the players and, and and wasn't able to be. So, you know, Leeds have not really broached the subject of points per game with him too much because they know that he would not favour it and he would not be keen on doing that unless it it was a last resort. And and nothing he's done in the interim has suggested that he's in any way trying to push them in that direction. It's funny you should say that about Bielsa because I can almost in my head hear him answering and saying, you know, through Flores, the conditions are not ideal, but we will adapt because he's so wedded to the idea of the system and the process, that that's all that really matters, isn't it? As long as you can get the players out there playing the football in the patterns, you know, making the passes, making the runs, then all will be well. 
he does believe in adapting and, and that's always been the case and that that's why when you you see players picking up injuries um he brings in 23s to to replace them it's why when we all think he needs another center back or another center mid or, or whatever it is you go through a transfer window and he shows no interest in in taking any of them and and it is because he always feels that with what he's got at his disposal he should be able to cope and he should be able to manage. And I think if he didn't feel that he had at his disposal what he needed, he, he wouldn't be in the job. So this will be exactly the same. And, and I do think, uh, I mean, Leeds might well be susceptible to soft tissue injuries. We'll, we'll have to see how it goes because they, they do work at such an in, intense rate. But at the same time, the fact that they do work at that rate and they've been doing so for two years should really, you know, it should stand in their favour and, and it should help them. And that that's the kind of air of confidence you get around the club is that they feel ready and, and they feel ready to go. And I think seeing other clubs suggest that June the twentieth isn't a great, you know, great timing. Seeing other clubs voicing complaints probably only makes them feel more optimistic. It was good seeing uh, Liam Cooper's words in that piece that you did, where you went down to Ellen Road, where he sort of saying, "Look, this is just not the culture of our club. Uh, we want to get out there and do it, even if it's uh, not in our own interest." And points per game could just take us, give us the simple route to the title. I know that they're, they're all really disappointed about the fact that if they do get promoted, they're not going to have the day that they should have had and the day that they would have had had there been no lockdown. You know, it is quite, it's a big thing for the supporters to lose, but it's a big thing for the players to, to lose. And I think particularly somebody like Cooper, who's been here for, you know, a good six years now and, and has seen the real pros of being at Leeds with Bielsa, but also the real cons of being at the club when it's a shambles and you you really are in, in the firing line. Uh, but they are all scared of the prospect of an asterisk going against their name when this is all done. You know, that, that little footnote that says the reason they only played 37 games this season was because COVID-19 shut the season down and they weren't able to finish, but they were promoted anyway. And I don't think they want it to be in any way a tarnished promotion and uh, or, or to get promoted without having played through the, the final nine games, particularly because, don't forget, it, it went so wrong last season. And they're all conscious of that. You know, they're all conscious of the fact that they didn't prove themselves last season and, and they didn't get there. And I suspect that comes from Bielsa as well. They will know that Bielsa will not want a curtailment. You know, if, if it doesn't have to be curtailed, he won't want to do that. And that'll flow down to them as well. But I think I think he pretty much speaks for everybody, Cooper. I think they're, they are all desperate to play, really, really desperate to play. And I think if it, if it was curtailed, they'd take it in the sense that it would, it would declare them champions here and now. But I don't think it would feel as satisfying as it needs to. As you'd expect, most of the listeners to the Phil Hayes Show live in Leeds. So if you run a business in the city... What better way to promote it than through our show just as the football season is making a comeback and our listeners are loyal and engaged just like you. So get in touch, sponsor this podcast and give your business a boost. So to advertise on this very show, go to theathletic.com forward slash podcast ads UK. That's theathletic.com forward slash podcast ads UK. And there is a really simple form just on there. Tell us exactly how much you'd be willing to spend promoting your business and The Athletic will sort you out. They'll be straight back in touch. And you could soon be sponsoring your favourite show. With the season gearing back up, then, as we've just been mentioning in part one of the show, we are looking forward to seeing John Kevin Augustine taking to the turf at Ellen Road. Sad we can't see him in person, but really, I think we're all looking forward to seeing what he can do. We described him on the Square Ball podcast earlier in the week as, uh, as a cult hero in waiting. And you did a bit of a deep dive on his stats in a piece with Tom Warville on The Athletic, Phil. And um, just to give us a sort of a flavour of, of what JK is like in terms of style and what it might bring to Leeds. Well, what we were trying to find out, a couple of things really. The first was, is he at, at £80 million or so, which is you know roughly the, the 
cost of the the obligation deal that Leeds have got in place with Leipzig. Is he going to be good value at that per se? You know, regardless of whether he fits into Bielsa's team or, or whatever else. In basic terms, as a player, is he worth that sort of money? But and crucially. Is he a Bielsa player? Does he have the the attributes that will make him fit? Does he have the the attributes to match a lot of what what Patrick Bamford does really well? The issue with Bamford, or the criticism that Bamford always gets, is is his finishing, and he knows that as well as anybody. And it's it's kind of constant and a, a regular refrain that he doesn't take enough chances, and because of that, Leeds have a, a much higher expected goals ratio than than the actual number of goals that they produce. But if you take the time to analyse Bamford and, and watch him closely, the, there are some things that he does extremely well and, and the crucial aspects of his game that, that really do suit what Bielsa is looking for. So he's he's very good at dropping deep and linking up with the midfield. He's he's excellent at, at launching the high press. And he's also good at, at running the channels and giving Leeds a, a bit of width, you know, outside the, the play that they get from the wingers and, and the fullbacks. And I think in order to get into a Bielsa team, you've got to do that. You've got to be able to do what Bamford does. And I don't think it matters if Augustine is a you know a brilliant finisher from six yards from 10 yards from from 12 yards the finishing alone wouldn't be enough um, for Bielsa it's got to be somebody who ticks all the boxes that that he sees in a centre forward and it was interesting I saw an interview with with Bamford a a month or so ago I think it was in the Independent where he said Bielsa is the first manager who's ever seen me as a a number nine you know first manager who's ever seen me as an out and out centre forward but even then with Bielsa you're talking about a very specific style of centre forward it's not necessarily a centre forward in the way that we all understand it they do a lot more they're they're far more involved they they have to play in quite a lot of of isolation And, and to be fair to Bamford he has to put up with with some quite heavy treatment in in a lot of the games that that he plays and we went through the the stats that Augustine had produced at Leipzig you know particularly his best season 2017-18 where where he scored eight times and and played regularly for them in what was a a good you know good and developing Leipzig um, side under Ralph Hasenhutl but also his his numbers in in France um, with Monaco and 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 just to get a general picture of of what he does and whether he can he can fit in and and I have to say that the conclusion we drew was that there is a lot about him which should be good for a Bielsa team there is a lot about him which should kind of replicate what Bamford does and I think more so with the help of some concerted first team training under Bielsa and one of his biggest problems so far Augustine is that he hasn't been fit for long enough you know he was here for little over a month before he pulled his hamstring he, he didn't get much of a kick of the ball in, in that period and had it not been for the shutdown I, I don't think he would have featured at all before the season finished um, I think it's unlikely he would have been fit unless Leeds had, had dropped into the playoffs but in this period now he'll get to train he'll get to take part in murder ball sessions if Bielsa is able to, to do murder ball sessions he'll get to the, the opportunity to start showing Bielsa what it is that he's like and, and what it is that he can do. And and I always feel with Bielsa that the initial signing, the, the fact that he likes the idea of the transfer, is almost a minuscule part of all this. The, the crucial thing is that you're able to prove, prove yourself and able to show that what he asks of you, you can you can deliver. And but I, I think that I think the prospects are quite good for for Augustine. And and it was interesting. Tom spoke to a, a recruitment analyst from a, a big club um, over on the continent who said they were amazed that um, Augustine ended up at. Leeds and in the championship they knew that he drifted a little bit with Leipzig in his second season and they knew that he hadn't played too much at at Monaco but they felt that for the obligation price of of 18 million pounds he was potentially a very good value signing and and somebody who Bielsa said himself when he first joined you know if he's fit and if he's in form and if he's scoring goals then you're talking about a player who's probably worth more like 30-40 million pounds. And do we have Bielsa to to thank for him coming to Leeds do you think? 
Not entirely. Um, it, it was somebody that Bielsa liked, um, somebody, a transfer that Bielsa approved, although you'll remember that the number one target in January was Shea Adams. And at the start of the window, Leeds thought they had him. They thought they would get that deal done from Southampton. They didn't think Southampton would want to to obstruct Adams coming out. And actually, given that the noises seem to suggest that Adams will probably be looking for a new club in the summer, you can understand why Southampton's board, at least, were, were relatively keen to, to cash in at the turn of the year. But... Augustine was was on the list, but he seemed like a fairly improbable option. Manchester United were interested in him. He he was playing at you know he was at a high level with with Monaco and and Leipzig. He was already on loan at Monaco, which was another complication. And with his wage, you're talking in excess of about ninety thousand pounds a week, which is a mile about you know almost three times what the highest earner at Leeds at the moment is is on. But there is a good relationship between him and um, between his agent and Leeds. Um, his agent also represents Harry Sacco in in, in the past. Past, um, looked after Sol Bamba when when Bamba was at Leeds, um, so it was able to be done. And I think Bielsa was a draw for Augustine, absolutely no question at all. Um, but there were there were a lot of strands to it, and I think in the end it just felt like a deal that was going to suit everybody. Augustine could see the the kind of lure of of getting promoted with Leeds and and getting into the Premier League that way. I think he probably felt that he'd have a better chance of forcing his way in quickly than he would be at than he would have at, at Old Trafford if he went there. Although I think given what we know about and Bielsa's loyalty to Bamford—that probably isn't the case. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, I think Bielsa being here made made the the deal a hundred times easier to sell without any question. One of the big things I saw in that piece that you did comparing the pair of them was that Bamford is going to be retained. Uh, you're reporting if we go up to the Premier League, so the striking options, two in each position, and all that will be him and John Kevin Augustine in the Premier League. Kind of like to open this up then to a question about whether we think Bamford will cut it in the Premier League because as you just sort of touched on there, Phil, he's received a lot of criticism for his finishing. Is that something that can be improved um, or is finishing something that's innate in a striker? And can he make that step up to the Premier League? It tends to be innate um, and it also comes with confidence. And I I think at at periods of his time at Leeds when he's been in the first team, I I would imagine his confidence has probably been weakened slightly by the fact that that he has so many eyes on him and, and that you know, particularly when Eddie and Ketia was here, it was just the constant discussion of why is Bamford in the team, why isn't Ketia um, getting a chance, regardless of the fact that in the main the results were good and the, resu- the results were kind of justifying the the lineup. But then you you look individually at, at the player himself and and you look at his xG and everything else, and and, and it doesn't seem to tally with what he should be doing. Um, but I come back to you know the the, the same point about strikers and Bielsa's eyes. It, it isn't really about the goals and it isn't about the finishing. It's about the all-round play and, and how they fit in. And, and he feels that Bamford suits the system very well. He feels like Bamford's kind of ingrained in that and understands it. And I'd be absolutely amazed if come this summer he decided that suddenly Bamford wasn't for him. Whether or not he thinks Bamford should be starting next season is a totally separate discussion. And it, and it might be that with the benefit of whatever pre-season develops and, and however things fall before next season starts, that, that Augustine moves ahead of Bamford and becomes a more viable or, or a more, more worthwhile option to start. But I just think the chances of Bielsa being disloyal, if you want to put it like that, to a lot of these players after what's gone on in the past two seasons is is pretty remote. I I think he has a lot of faith in a lot of them. um, And I do think we'll be seeing a lot of them in the Premier League if if Leeds do go up. You see, I remain to be convinced about Bamford. I've got a completely open mind about it and I'm aware of, uh, obviously Bielsa likes continuity, which is a thing we've touched on in in recent weeks. So it's no surprise to see him retained. I do wonder if in the next couple of years perhaps then if we do manage to get up and stay up that he might be replaced or maybe even drop off into kind of an inside forward type of position Bamford maybe he might um, have a little bit more joy there you know linking up play between 
midfield and and a striker. I mean, where in your opinion, and we'll, let's open this up to everybody here, do we need to strengthen? Because I would suggest, in my mind, we probably need a centre-back, and that's even if we do manage to get Ben White, and then somebody in that mould who can play, probably in the sort of Pablo or Saiz mould, a midfield forward kind of wide man, like, you know, your modern inside forward. What do you think? I think this is just going to be a hallmark of the Bielsa era at Leeds, that every summer we say we need a centre-back, and we're never getting a centre-back. We just You just need to give up on that dream, Dan. If, particularly if we get Ben White, there's no way we're getting anyone else. Calvin Phillips can play there. I'll, he'll have Alan, four foot six Alfie McCalmont playing there next season. The one thing that might influence a centre back coming in is Berardi, because um, obviously he is out of contract this summer. But Leeds do want to offer him a, a new deal, and they want to keep him. Um, and I'm, I'm certain he'll be here until the, the championship games for this season are, are done. Um, if he stays, I, and I mean, the, if White goes, they will have to sign somebody else. There's no question of that. And I think it, the feeling has been for a while now that it's very unlikely that Leeds will be able to find a way to do a deal for him. But I think if by some miracle White was to stay and Berardi was to sign up, I don't think we'll see any other centre-backs joining um, unless it's somebody extremely young and somebody signed for development purposes. I would again say that I, I think that the light in the centre of midfield um, in terms of numbers and in terms of cover, but we know Bielsa's attitude to cover. So it's almost pointless going down that, that line of debate. I just don't think he'll, I don't think he'll do that if he feels that he's got sufficient bodies there. And um, left back is an area that, that strikes me as being necessary because I, I, I would like to see Dallas given a good run there because of how good he's been moving into that position uh, or how good he was in, in the kind of six to eight weeks before the, the season shut down. But I think the absence of a, a specialist left back there who's reliable and dependable is a, is a bit of a problem. And it's never quite felt that either Barry Douglas or Gianni Alioski are able to slot in there in a way that would want you to keep them in position for, for 46 games. I mean, Douglas has had problems with injury, obviously, which, which hasn't helped. On Douglas then, do you imagine his future maybe is away from Ellen Road then? Could you see him moving on in the summer? It's a good question that. I mean, he, he he's always felt like a player that Bielsa likes and player that, that Bielsa rates, but his contract's ticking on now. And it, it's kind of been two years where we've all been waiting to see the Douglas that we we'd witnessed at Wolves um, in that season when they, they cruised the, the championship, when he, he was... Great for assists. His left foot was causing all sorts of trouble. People remember the um, the free kick he scored against Leeds down at, at Molyneux. From speaking to the club and, and from what I'm hearing, I, I don't get the sense that there's a, a great deal of attention being paid to outgoings this summer. And and one of the reasons for that is because they have now nailed it down to a point where and, and trimmed the squad down to a point where they don't have a huge number of excess players. It's not like the, the hangover from the, the 17-18 season where there were just handfuls of professionals who needed to be moved on. There are still a few. Um and, and there's still a few um a few players that they'll have to try and find new clubs for. But Douglas I think is is probably one to watch. I can see I can see the appeal of having him in the squad because he is a capable left back at his best, and I think he can be better than than he's shown himself to be in these two seasons. And you know, helped by better better sort of fitness or or better luck with with injuries, I, I think he he could still play a part. But yeah, I think if if you were going through the squad and and you know putting a question mark over who might stay and and who might go, I think he falls into the category of of not sure at the moment. On Berardi's contract, what's the club's thinking on that? Because it's he hasn't been offered one up to this point, has he? Whereas earlier in the season, we saw another round dished out. And I think he's the only 
member of the first team squad out of contract this summer, isn't he? He is. They, they agreed that they would wait until the end of uh, the season and, and that was as much Berardi's wish as, as the club's. He, at some stage, is going to go back to Italy with, with his partner and, and I think he's been tempted previously to do that and, and to go from Leeds. The feeling is that if they do go up, though, he, he will surely want a crack at the Premier League, even if he's not going to be a regular player. You know, just to be around the club in that period to see what it's like and, and to have some experience of it. So if, if Leeds do go up, I think there's a high likelihood that they will accept extend his deal. I don't know if it'll be a short extension, you know, 12 months, two years, something like that. If they don't go up, something tells me that there'll, there'll be more appeal to him in going home and, and finding a club back in Italy, back where he lived for so long over there. So it's in no way is it an a indication that the club or Bielsa don't rate him. I think they'd be very happy if Berardi was to agree to sign up tomorrow. But it, it was just one of those, and this does happen from time to time, where they kind of felt that it was best for everybody if they just let this lie until they got to the point where the season was done. What about this suggestion that I made just before then? Do you think we could get like an inside forward wide man, somebody in that Pablo Hernandez role? Because there must be question marks about whether he's going to be able to see through a full Premier League season or maybe have the same sort of influence he's had over the last couple of years. But something like that doesn't come cheap, does it? So A, would we be after a player like that? And B, would we be able to afford it? Again, Bielsa won't want to overload those areas. And, and we've moved this season from Hernandez being the, the automatic pick on the right-hand side to Costa playing in that position and Hernandez playing in the middle. Although, again, minus Adam Forshaw and, and him being available, it is impossible to know what Bielsa's preferred lineup or, or you know regular lineup would have been had everybody been fit. It might well have been that Hernandez would have kept his, his place on the right-hand side and Costa would have been more of a, of a bench player. But certainly Han, Hernandez hasn't been quite the player he was this season season um, in comparison to last although his stats for goals and assists last season was ridiculously off the scale and I think you know he's he said himself that he's, he's hardly if ever played better at any stage since he, he turned professional um, but you know Leeds will, will look to activate the option to take Jack Harrison um, they have to take Costa um, on a full-time basis they've got Alioski who can play out wide they do have Hernandez who can cover on, on the right-hand side as well it, it comes back to this thing with Bielsa of, of wanting two players in each position and I, I think there's almost wriggle room there I almost think that you could bring another wide player and you could bring somebody like that who would fit and, and would have a decent chance of, of playing but I'm not at this stage sure if that's a route they'll go down If we could get Samuel Saez but with a correct attitude then that would be pretty much perfect It's a shame the way it worked out with him because he, he he could have fitted into the Bielsa system so perfectly and even when his heart was not really in it at the start of Bielsa's reign he was still producing some nice little moments so Someone like that, again, who could drift around a bit and, and pull some strings. But, I mean, failing that, it'll be Stuart Dallas. Well, normally we would proudly declare that this one was in your hands, but it felt like you desperately wanted this one to get through at some stage or another, Phil, for the survey part of the, of the podcast. Every week you put up a, a three-choice poll on your Twitter account for what we talk about in this bit. And this was the one you desperately, I think, if anything's if last week's show is anything to go by that you wanted to do so in third place Gary Max Demise's boss 21% uh, Milanich's time at Leeds 31% and then Poyet quitting on Wise with nearly half the vote thousands of you voted thank you if you did so you, you were keen to tell this story Phil Poyet deserting uh why is, why is that? What, what's the backstory there? I have to be honest and say I'm, I'm as keen on the other two options as well because they're both pretty fascinating. I think particularly Milinic's 32 days on the basis that you know managerial reigns of, of that length are almost unheard of, and it was a, it was a truly bizarre period in which I don't think he ever really felt like he would he'd landed for long enough for his feet to to touch the ground. But 
Poyet's departure I always found interesting because he was, without any question, the right-hand man that Wise needed at Leeds. Uh, he was he was needed in the period when Wise was under the cost from the crowd and, and poor results in the championship. Kind of support that Wise needed when it, it felt like people were, were trying to push him out and, and it felt as if he wasn't going to be able to survive the, the barrage that came on the back of, of relegation. And and I still feel with hindsight that Poyet going was kind of the beginning of, of the end for Wise. Not in terms of results necessarily and not in terms of league position, but in terms of Wise's own commitment to the job and, and in terms of his is, is, I guess his last ability in in a job that was extremely tiring for him and, and was asking a lot of him. I think it felt to me that for as long as Poyet was there, there was somebody to bounce off and there was somebody's energy to, to feed off. But with hindsight, when I look back now, Poyet disappearing and, and departing in, in the way that he did, I think just removed that that sort of point of energy that, that Wise needed and, and ultimately didn't have before he decided to quit himself. I mean, they weren't widely loved when they arrived, was it in 2006, the pair of them, that they came in? We only actually had Poyet for, it was a year, wasn't it, before he went um, off to join Wande Ramos and Spurs. And it was in the early stages of the minus 15 season, sort of that October, wasn't it? So we just sort of got back to zero and then suddenly off he went. It was exactly a year because on, on the Thursday when it all unfolded, um, I'd finally managed to pin Wise down to do an interview about his, his first year in charge. And um, the, the next day, the Friday, was the anniversary of, of him taking over. And it's, it's not a secret that Wise and I were, were at odds for a, a long time. Didn't get on at all really in, in his first season, but he, he was having a good run at that point and the results had been excellent from the start of League One. Leeds were, were nigh on top of the table or thereabout, having I mean, started with, with minus 15 points and, and I felt it was worth the piece. I felt it was worth his opportunity to speak properly about what, what he'd been doing and, and how it had been for him. But on that Thursday up at Thorpe Arch, the, there was no sign of point and I wasn't aware at the time that, that anything was going on with Spurs and, and neither were Leeds as a club. And um, Wise was there with Joe Allen, who was um, one of his, his back backroom staff members, the ex-Newcastle and, and Chelsea striker, and was in, in good form, upbeat, um, had some some good stories to tell about the year behind him. And, and what none of us realised, and I, I'm still not sure to what extent Wise realised that this was going on either, was that at that point, and just as he was talking about you know his, his year in charge and how it had all turned around and how things seemed to be going so well, Spurs were in the process of prizing Juan de Ramos away from um, Sevilla and also getting Poyet in um, from Leeds to be his number two down at White Hart Lane. Um, a, for the coaching, but also B, for um, a bit of translation because uh, Wander Amos's English was not great. And it all developed on on the Friday morning. All of a sudden, you, you started to get phone calls or hear whispers that Poyet was going to, to Spurs. And the interesting thing was that when you spoke to Leeds about it, there was quite a lot of confusion um, about what was going on. Sky had mentioned um, the previous night that this might be happening because Spurs and Getafe were playing in, in the Europa League or, or the UEFA Cup as, as it was. And Martin Yaw was sacked at, at the end of that game. And, and Spurs, I think a bit to their discredit, had, um, had leaked that story or somebody from Spurs had leaked the story beforehand that Yaw would be leaving um, and, and Wanda Ramos would be coming in with, with Poye. Um, and so this was all over Sky Sports coverage. And in, and in the end, I remember you all saying that the only way he found out that he was going to be sacked was at the end of the game when he walked up the tunnel and his nephew stopped him and said, this is what I'm reading on the internet. You know, this is what, what's being said. And crucially as well, at the time um, the game was on, Kim Bates was, was sat at home watching um, watching the live coverage and that was the first time that he discovered that Poyet was going to Spurs um, was when Sky mentioned it um, in the middle of their coverage and needless to say that 
it was the start of a chain reaction which led to some pretty choice quotes, led to demands for, for compensation and created quite a messy 24 hours in which you realised that Poyet was going to a very good job and you realised he was going to a job which, you know, in, in with the best will in the world, people at least should have been wishing him well about. But because of the way it had been handled and, and because of the way Spurs had, had acted in, in getting it done, there was actually quite a bit of bad blood in the background. What do you imagine that phone call from Ken Bates went like? Well, I remember him saying... I was sat watching Sky and they suddenly said my assistant's going to Spurs and, and I was like, what's all that about? I, I think the, the phone call would have been, give me some money. I want money. You shouldn't have done this. It was an illegal approach. And, and in the end, Tottenham did end up paying, I think, or at least it was reported at the time, around about half a million pounds, £600,000 to take Poyet. But I think as well for Leeds, instantly that question of what impact is this going to have on on Wise? I mean, I never felt that, and, and obviously I was very close to the club at the time and and, the, and remember well the coverage of it. I never felt that the, the kind of dislike of the Chelsea element and the dislike of Wise and Bates that developed and also with Williams quite extended to Poyet in the same way. He, he had more of a jovial character. He, he was he was quite easy, well, very easy to warm to was Gus. And the players loved him. I mean, it's not unusual at all to find a scenario where the players like the assistant manager more than they, they like the manager. And that was certainly the case with, with Wise and, and Poyet. The players were were big on his attitude. He was very good at energising the dressing room and, and obviously when the form got going, they, they fed off that a lot, both Wise and, and the players. And I found it interesting actually when um, Gary McAllister was, was sacked in 2008 and he was obviously Dennis Wise's replacement. When he went, Leeds were at such a low ebb that there was a very, very strong feeling at Leeds that they should go for Poye because they knew that Poye coming in would lift the dressing room instantly, that him walking in through the door would be a big shot in the arm for, for all of the players. And it never happened. It was Simon Grayson in the end and Grayson went on to, to take them up. But he was a good coach and, and he, he was, you know, within the, the dressing room, um, he was popular at the time. And I think Leeds knew that they were losing quite a big string to the bow. I seem to recall Poyet being quite nice about the fans and kind of engaging us in that way that people who end up being liked do. What was it, do you think, maybe Poyet did or didn't do that was different to Bates and Wise? I think just not being Dennis Wise is, in, is enough to, to make him the popular one. If you've got to, stopping short of outright hating all of your management, he gave you someone to like a little bit. But I, I sort of feel a bit like with Poyet, he did get... It looked upon maybe a little bit too favourably in so, to certain respects because, like he, he was part of the the team that got us relegated, and and that was a shambolic season. The their attempt at keeping us in the championship, they had a lot of time. They did bring in players, and it was a complete failure. And he, he essentially took no blame for that. And then when we were down in League One and winning games, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, this is Gus Poyer doing this," as opposed to Dennis Wise. So while I don't actually want to give Dennis Wise any credit, I think it felt like it was always slightly unequal in terms of who got the credit and who got the blame in that pairing. There was always that perception that Poyet was kind of the brains of the operation. That seemed to be the narrative that emerged out of it, though. I think that's just because we knew Dennis Wise was a bit thick. I mean, what was Wise like, Phil? Because it'd be interesting to get your kind of insider view on it because we only saw the, the person in the headlines, the person of the press conferences. Uh, what was it about his personality, perhaps around Thorpe Arch, that the players might not have liked so much? Or what was it that you kind of clashed with? He was very spiky, and and he, as a manager, he, he was exactly as he was as a as a player. You know, I mean, I I interviewed Beck for for the Athletic before back before Christmas, kind of October time, and he told the story of how. Wise decided that at the start of the the 0708 season he was going to go with Beckford and Candle um, as his front two, and you know people might recall that he'd used that pairing um, in a championship game up at Sunderland on, on Boxing Day when Leeds were in the championship, and it had been a bit of a disaster. They'd hardly got into the game. Sunderland had won that you know that match 
comfortably. And I think at that point in the, the summer that followed, nobody in Leeds had any confidence that Beckford or Candle were going to serve up any goals. Nobody had any confidence that they were suited to, to Leeds United or, or suited to, to playing in League One. But as Beckford tells it, Wise just said to him, the fans are going to be unhappy about this. They're going to criticise me. They're going to moan, but I don't give a fuck because I'm the manager and it's my decision. And that was that was Wise. You know, that was Wise as a player. It was how he was as a manager. And, and I think the crucial difference between the season in the Championship and the season in League One was that when he came in in the Championship, he immediately got rid of Paul Butler and Sean Gregan and and, and crossed swords with others. You know, I think players who, who needed to go, but effectively he had a squad um, who, when he inherited it, pretty much took a dislike to him instantly, not necessarily en masse, but enough people in that dressing room that there was no way of settling it down and there was no way of, of developing any unity. I mean, I remember them losing down at Barnsley and this would have been a month or two months after Wise took over and, and interviewing Robbie Blake afterwards and, and Blake just saying there's no confidence amongst these players at all there's no confidence in the dressing room we don't feel like we, we really know what we're doing we don't feel like we're going to win games and it's so rare to hear players speak like that they almost always try and project some form of positivity no matter the, the position you're in and, and partly because so many of them are, are media trained but when you got round to the following season you had a squad that had been constructed by Wise himself in part because so many players players had left during the, the administration and during the, the shambles of the 15-point the deduction. So pretty much everybody who was on the books wanted to be there and, and wanted to to play for him. And actually, when you speak to people like Andrew Hughes, when you speak to people like David Prutton, to people like Jermaine Beckford, they talk very highly of his, his management in the period when when it was going well and, and the period when when they were playing for him and, and when the results were good. I think what people probably didn't appreciate at the time was that Wise's family were still down in London. He was doing a lot of travelling by car from, from Leeds to London. It was taking him away from his family for a long time and little by little his enthusiasm for it was draining and draining and draining and I think while the results were were good and while Leeds were really in the mix for um, you know, for a top two finish um, and an automatic promotion, there was something to to cling on to. But there was a little turn in January when results started to go against him. One in particular where Doncaster came to Ellen Road and, and completely outplayed Leeds by far the, the better side on the day. And I think it just reached the point where he wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Poyet had gone, and ultimately, within a few days or a, a week or so after that, he was gone to Newcastle too. Strange that his family was in London, but he took a job with Newcastle, but it involved sitting in an office in London, didn't it, by the sounds of it? Uh, do you think do you think Ken Bates would have ever sacked Dennis Wise had he not left? Very difficult to answer that. I I really don't know. And I think on the basis that he didn't sack him after they were relegated from the championship, it, it would obviously have taken a huge amount for him to have decided that he'd had enough. Wise and Poy both took pay cuts in order to to stay on. And I think, again, that was pretty indicative of Wise's um, thick skin because it was obvious to everybody that he had li- he and Bates had little to no support in Leeds after that season. And I can understandably so, given everything that, that had gone on. But I know that Wise and Wise and Bates were disappointed with Poy for the way that he went. I know that Bates was disappointed with Wise for the way that, that he left. You know, that, that sudden departure to, to Newcastle that came in the blink of an eye and, and a little bit like Poyer's exit to, to White Hart Lane caught you by surprise. You know, it, it, it had kind of been mooted in the papers a couple of weeks before that he was being considered for this director of football role up at Newcastle. But um, when we'd asked him about it, he just kind of laughed it off. And it seemed like an it seemed like an odd move to go from first team manager of a club like Leeds to what seemed to be a bit of a back office role. Um, at Newcastle and clearly when you start to understand the family dynamic you realise why the appeal of only having to go to Newcastle by helicopter now and again was was a bonus 
the way it ended was strange, really, because they they started as this really, really sort of unified and loyal team that seemed able to resist any amount of criticism that came their way to a scenario where it was just kind of they were each dropping off one by one and, and like I say I think Poyet going didn't derail the whole thing it wasn't the case that he went and, and the results fell apart overnight but I definitely think that a strand of, of Wise's enthusiasm and, and passion was lost with that and I always remember Wise's last game down at Luton they, they conceded a, a last minute equaliser and, and at that point he'd he just missed out on Enoch Shawumni who, who obviously came to Leeds further down the line but I think it was a deal Wise had kind of expected to happen um, and we told him, you know, that it had been reported when they saying, you know, I'm, I'm not keen. I don't want to go there. I, I don't want to drop into League One at, at this stage. And having expected Wise to dig into him and to criticise him in the way that Wise was um, Wise was prone to doing, he just literally said, bless him, and walked off. And it just struck you as somebody who was kind of losing the will to, to stick at it and somebody who was going to be gone quite soon. I mean, Poyet's time at Brighton was a success. Do you think, I mean, it's a big what if, do you think he could have made a success of it at Leeds had he returned? I think he probably could have done. I mean, again, it it was great for a, a good while at Brighton. It, it went wrong for him um, towards the end and managerially it's not been easy for him from that point onwards. But I think the, the circumstances at the point where McAllister was sacked, I, I think they would have been good for Poyet. I think he'd have had enough players in that dressing room that he could have worked with and enough players that he could have brought brought the talent out of so I, I can understand why at that point he was an obvious pick and why there was quite a lot of support for him at Ellen Road you know the idea that they should go for him um, and, and revive a, a flagging dressing room but in the end it would be difficult to to make any argument to say that they made a mistake by going for, for Grayson and actually when you look closely at Grayson it was quite a clever appointment he'd done it at Blackpool um, he was he was clearly developing into a good manager at that stage and, and I don't think anybody would look back on that with any regrets would you like to have seen him come back then, boys, or are you glad we took the path that we did? It's, it's hard to want to undo anything that Grayson did. It, at the end of it that season, I know it was a stressful end and there were some horrendous low points in there as well following the uh, the cup run, but I wouldn't wish to take back any of that season. I guess the different scenario where it, it could have been Wise and Poy who took leads up if they'd stuck with it and given that everyone hated them or hated him. Do you think there are any regrets on the part of Poy or Wise for that matter, that the fact that they both jumped ship uh, during that season and they they could have written themselves into folklore in one kind or another or would we not want a Chelsea stain on our history? I suspect there probably aren't too many regrets. I'm, I'm sure Poyer saw Spurs as a step up from assistant manager at, at Leeds who was going from League One to the um, to the Premier League and, and it was an easy job to take and, and I think Wise had, Wise had run his course at Leeds and for personal reasons as much as anything was was keen to to let it go and and uh, Wise never struck me as somebody who would have taken huge amount of satisfaction from having promotion at Leeds on his CV. I think he'd have, he'd have enjoyed it and it would have been great and, and everything else. But I don't picture him sitting, saying to himself, I wish I'd stuck around and, and I wish I'd, I'd done that. He's he's barely been seen um, in football since the end of the, the Newcastle gig. Um, you don't even see much of him. He, he shows up on um, Sky Sports from time to time, Gillette Soccer Saturday, but you don't see much of him in football circles either. I don't know whether he's at Stamford Bridge regularly on match days or, or anything like that. But he is somebody who you thought could have a long career in football after he played, but hasn't and, and has just kind of disappeared into the background. And I don't imagine for a second after everything that went on in his playing career and, and the things that he won and, and the things that he did, that um, this keeps him awake at night. I just looked down um, Poyet's career sort of post lead and he's ended up going via Sunderland to Greece and Athens and Betis and then to China. Uh, and ended up in France. It feels like he's never found a home or maybe found the level that he's going to be successful at. No, and I, I think Brighton was the point for him. 
you know that that was the stage at which his stock was really high. It was the stage at which he he seemed you know was very close to getting a club out of the championship and and into the Premier League, which obviously does great things for your reputation and and takes you on to to bigger things. And you're right; it, it's almost as if it's it's been a bit of a drift for him, just trying to find somewhere where he fits, somewhere where his his kind of philosophy and and ideas fit. And I think. When he looks back, he, he might be a little frustrated really with how he's gone from managerially, not as a player, because he was a he was a fantastic player who, who did great things. But when it comes to, to management, I, I I always look at Poyet and think he probably could have been much more than he was. Phil, boys, thanks for that one then. We will wrap it up there for this week. And as always, keep an eye on Phil's Twitter feed for next week's poll to decide what we do in part three of the show. Are you going to try and uh, fix it again this next week, Phil? Shall I try and ram Milinic in there? Yeah, I'll do my best. We need something more positive. Let's have a nice, a nice happy story next week, I think. Yeah, go on. That seems fair. Grab yourself a 30-day free trial at The Athletic so you are all ready for when this football kicks off again in a couple of weeks. You can read all Phil's stuff there, all the podcasts ad-free, plus all the football content that The Athletic has in its stable. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of that. We'll speak to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.